Once upon a time there was a beautiful princess. Her beauty was spoken of throughout the land. Poets wrote tombs filled to the brim with sonnets and limericks devoted to her beauty. Artists filled entire galleries with paintings and sculptures, trying desperately to capture her near-perfect form. Her beauty was surpassed only by her wisdom. Her father, the king, had raised her to be a fair, just ruler, and over time her only concern became the happiness and safety of her subjects. One fateful day, a charming prince came to town. He had come to woo the princess and woo he did. They spent hours together, hours became days. Days became weeks and the beautiful princess began to fall in love with the charming prince. Their love was spoken of throughout the kingdom. One day, the charming prince took the beautiful princess to a shady meadow at the edge of a deep wood. He began to tell her how much he loved her. He said if she loved him, she would go into a deep wood and pick him the rarest flower in the world, the scarlet rose. The princess agreed out of pure devotion to the charming prince and went into the deep wood in search of the scarlet rose. The sun began to set and just when all seemed lost, she happened upon the rose. She reached for the beautiful bloom, but at the very touch of the thorns, the beautiful princess fell into a deep sleep. The charming prince then appeared. He stood over her body and smiled. It had been his plan all along. He then stole all the princess's riches and stole away. He had a maiden waiting for him in another kingdom, and he left the beautiful princess alone in the deep wood. The king sent out search parties, but to no avail. Months passed until... One day, while hunting, the king happened upon a beautiful woman covered in vines. It was his daughter. He tried to wake her, but as he tried, he might, she would not stir from her deep sleep. The king lamented over his beautiful daughter, taken from him in the prime of life. He called his advisers to him, who took the beautiful princess back to the castle. They laid her down in her bedchamber and pondered what to do. His advisers studied her sleep and found that the cause was the poison of the scarlet rose. When they informed the king, he begged them to give her an antidote, but no such antidote existed. They tried every potion in the kingdom to rouse her, but none would wake the beautiful princess. The king's advisers came to him and told him that all they could do was wait for the poison to run its course. The king, in rage, searched the kingdom for the cause of his daughter's sleep. He found nothing until he heard word from another kingdom of a young prince whose fortune arose, whose fortune arose seemingly from nowhere. This was the charming prince who had betrayed her. The king then issued a decree from that day forward. Should a man wish for his daughter's hand, that man must wait in the kingdom for her to awaken. Men from across the world came to wait for the hand of the maiden of incorporeal beauty. The suitors lined the streets of the kingdom, each trying to prove his worth, and so it was. But as the years went by, the stories of the princess's beauty faded from record, and the art made in her image was lost. And slowly men began to grow weary of waiting, believing that the beautiful princess would never awaken. One by one they left the kingdom, days turned to months, turned to years, until the streets once lined with suitors like Baron. All the suitors had left the beautiful princess, save for one. The lone knight remained, knelt at her bedside. He has not budged from the moment he arrived. His armour heavy with rust, he waited on. Time passed until one fateful day, the princess finally awoke. 
When she opened her eyes, only one knelt before her, her most faithful knight. As he looked in her newly opened eyes, he spoke of what had transpired, the poison, the king's decree, and how he waited for her. But then her most faithful knight said something which surprised her. He spoke of how he had always loved her from afar. He said he had become a knight in hopes of one day serving her in the court. The beautiful princess was moved to tears. She called in her father, who was elated to see his daughter in full spirits yet again. Out of his joy, he promised her anything she desired. She said she wished for only one thing, the faithful knight to join her in her court, but not as a knight, but as her husband. They were married the next day and the kingdom rejoiced, and for years to come the kingdom would tell the tale of the beautiful princess and the most faithful knight. She's promised she won't tell mum. Evie had me by the wrist now and was pulling me out the back door. You know I can't promise that, sweetie, I replied, trying to stay light-hearted in the face of my daughter's obvious anxiety. She was taking me towards the garden with a real sense of urgency in her tone. Through the glass doors away from where I had been working at the dining table, I had terminated the call early when no matter what I did or faces I pulled, she continued to tug on my sleeve. Daddy, you have to promise me I'm not supposed to be telling you either. I was starting to get concerned now. Evie, just tell me what I'm looking at. She said nothing and continued to tow me like a reluctant ship out of harbour. Towards the back of the garden and the shed. It was her little den, a secret space just for her, where her little three-year-old mind could explore and seek stimulation. The grass was spring green and by the time we reached the shed, my navy slippers were soaked through with dew. She took me round the back of the shed and pointed at some stones on the ground. Look, she said tearfully, but firmly. Look, she's hurt. Feelings, I must confess, relieved not to find anything more sinister. I knelt down to examine what she was trying to show me. In the small gap between the shed and the fence at the bottom of our garden was a wild garden which she called jungle. The grass grew tall and moss was thick on the ground, with insects burrowing in and out most of the soil. She was pointing to a ring of stones that she had made, a very neat ring for a three-year-old. It was a perfect circle, and in the middle was an empty green space, clear of mud, dead insects, twigs, and anything else. Can you see, Daddy? Yes, I can, darling. It's very pretty. How did you get the stones so neat? It wasn't me, it was a fairy. I nodded my head with half a smile. Ah, I see. There was a pregnant pause, and I noticed that she still seemed upset. So? Can you see? She was almost pleading with me now, pointing at the ring with more and more ferocity. Yes, Evie, I can see your ring. I just said it's very nice. No, not the ring, she shouted. In the ring, can you see fairy? I looked back at the ring, wondering if there was a toy within it. I was supposed to be looking at, but I still couldn't see anything apart from perfectly flat green grass. There's nothing in there, sweetheart. Is this a game? No, Daddy, she begged, bouncing her knees in anguished frustration. Fairy's in there. She is hurt or poorly. I don't know, but she needs help. She said not to get you, because you're a grown-up, but I didn't know what else to do. Please, Daddy, you have to see her. The scales were falling from my eyes. Is she pretending? No, I'd never seen tantrums before, and I'd heard Evie shout when she was cross or particularly upset about something. But this was on a whole other level. I tried to soothe her with gestures and a cuddle, but she pushed me off and knelt by the ring. Come here, fairy. Let me show him you. 
She covered up the air in her tiny palms as if it was a timid forest animal and held it out to me. Please, Daddy, look. Don't just look with your eyes, look with your mind. I stared at that. She was behaving with such gentility that I began to believe in. The creature she held in her tiny hands. Imagine, she said the word, not like it was a child's game, but face it with myself I was missing. And I felt a pang in my chest, but I did as I was asked. I let go of my preconceptions of childhood games and fantasy. I let go of my Zoom call and my water bill and the pandemic. I let go of myself and looked down with naked eyes and beheld my daughter's new pet. It had purple pink wings, shaped like a butterfly, but puffed up. Iridescent and clear as if they were shaped from bubbles. There were two tails that hung limply over the sides of my daughter's palms that reminded me of a manta ray that both stemmed from a body of a deep, deep, ruddy violet. The body was insectoid as opposed to humanoid, with layers of coloured carapace refracted light softly like silk. His round head and face had recognisable features, a mouth and eyes but no nose. My eyes gazed upon me fearfully, like a puppy caught in a trap, and what could have been my fear was melted by pity. I looked a strange creature up and down with my open mind. It had no visible wounds, but I could tell somehow that it was ill. She's been getting worse, Daddy, Evie said softly and sadly. The bigger I get, the sicker she gets. She held the strange creature out to me, took her daddy. My throat tightened at the look on her face, and I reached out to touch the creature, but instead held her hand. I don't think I can fix her, darling, I began gently. I think the only one who can fix fairy is you. But how, daddy? I can't do it. I smiled gently to try and reassure her as she fought back her tears. Fairy isn't real, but that doesn't mean you can't believe in her, she shook her head. But I don't know if I do anymore. The bigger I get, the farther away she seems. She doesn't make sense like she used to. There are questions in my head, and the more they ask, the more she seems to disappear. As she said, I watched as a strange fairy, rift and winced as if in pain, and I squeezed her hand. You're getting older, sweetheart, and you're learning the rules of the world. As you get older, you'll realise that things like fairies don't belong in it. They aren't in so many words, real. For a moment she seemed to despair, and her pet curled up in her palms like a sick dog, but I squeezed her hand. But that doesn't mean they can't be real to you. I tapped the side of my head with my finger. While you believe in her, she can always be real. She will never get ill. Forever, she asked, and I nodded. Absolutely. Evie looked down at Fairy, and Fairy looked back at my daughter, and it seemed like they were smiling at each other. The mysterious creature faded away out of her hand, becoming more and more translucent until there was nothing left. Evie closed her fist and looked up at my face. I've got her safe now, Daddy, and she tapped her head back at me. I held her hand as she walked back to the house. Thank you for helping me, Daddy. No, sweetie, I said, watching a translucent dragon circling out the corner of my eye, and I watched her loop away through the sky. Thank you. Samir was a 16-year-old boy and was an entomophobic. It was July and his summer vacation. All day he played with his friend Akshay. Akshay was Samir's classmate and best friend. After having his breakfast, Samir went out as usual to play with Akshay in the ground. They planned their meeting on yesternight. Samir saw his chum, Ashke, already arrived at the ground wearing knee pads. 
sorry for arriving late. You were late as usual, Sunu. Now don't waste time. Go and wear your pants and grab your bag for fine action. After their cricket practice, they left for the houses. They lived in the same colony. On the way, they stopped at a tea store for some snacks and tea. Today's practice was much better than yesterday's practice, Nanshi said. Yeah, day by day we are getting better, replied Sunu. Sunu was eating his samosa when he felt some tickling on his neck. Put down his samosa on the plate from his left hand and tea from his right hand. He put his right hand on his neck and grabbed something he was unaware of. When he checked his hand to see what it was, he saw a cockroach. After he saw it, Sunir cried a loud cry and felt unconscious. When he fell unconscious, everybody hurried towards him and tried to wake him up. Nakshay was in a state of shock. It was when the owner of the store sprinkled water over his face, Sunir woke up from his unconscious state. Nakshay was confused over the scene he just witnessed. What was it? What just happened to me? asked Nakshay. I'm entomophobic, replied Sunir, assuming that Nakshay knows what he meant. Entophobic, what's that? asked Akshay. It's not entophobic, but entomophobic. It's a phobia of insects, or in other words, I'm scared of them, but very much scared, replied Smith. Why have you never told me about it? We are best buddies. We're supposed to keep we were supposed not to keep secrets hidden from each other. Then why? I was afraid that if people came to know about my fear of insects, they would make fun of me. But now when you have witnessed it yourself, there's nothing to keep hidden from you. Sorry, actually. I should have trusted you, as you were the only normal friend I've got in my life. One night, Samir woke up from his sleep as he felt dehydrated. He went to the kitchen and started switching the lights on. But when he came back from the kitchen, he switched on the lights and what he saw on his bed was even worse than the worst of his nightmares. It was a huge spider lying on his bed. He couldn't do anything to get him out from there. He thought of waking his parents up of the night where people were in their deep sleep. He grabbed a chair and placed it in front of his bed at the angle from which he could keep an eye on it. Alarm rang at seven in the morning, waking Samir up. Samir opened his eyes and his eyes searched for the spider from yesterday, but it was nowhere to be found. In front of his mirror, Samir stood and quickly took off his clothes to check if a spider was in there, but it was also not there. Samir then quickly ran out from his room and on towards washroom inside his parents' bedroom to the floor his sleep from last night. In the afternoon, Akshay called him and asked why he didn't come today for practice. But Samir lied to him and said that he was not feeling well and that's why he didn't come for practice. After Samir hanged up the phone with Akshay, he immediately rushed towards his room and searched each and every corner of his room but found nothing. Ultimately, he became tired and quit his search or in other words, hunt for the spider. After many nights, one night Samir once again felt dehydrated, but this time he had already kept a jug of water inside his room. He switched on the lights of his room and stood up to drink some water. After he kept back the glass on the table, he checked his bed and saw nothing and felt a sense of relief. When he put his legs inside the blanket, he saw the same spider lying on the wall in front of him. Samir did the same thing he did on the first night. sat down on his bed with his legs crossed, his right hand under his chin and kept staring at it. But after some time he became frustrated as he could no longer take it. He remembered as a kid what his mother used to say whenever he was with his mother and saw a stray dog. 
don't be afraid of him as long as you will not harm him he will not do anything to you so he once again put his faith in the saying of his mother and switched off the lights however he couldn't sleep quickly but after some time ultimately went to sleep the next day he woke up and saw a spider not there and instead of being anxious about it he felt comfortable with it from now on a spider appeared every night, not knowing from where, but with the common sense of a new day, he disappeared to come sign of nowhere land. Samir has now become accustomed to it and it didn't bother him anymore, but paradoxically began to like his untamed pet. I actually went to Samir's house one day and decided to stay. He woke up at night and put the flashlight of his momo on and screamed loudly. Samir immediately woke up and asked him what happened. There is a freaking spider on our bed, asked Ashke. Oh, sorry, I forgot to introduce you. This is my pet roommate, Timmy, or you can call him Tim. Nine-year-old Marlene hated cockroaches more than anything else. She could not bear the sight of them and would immediately scream for help. Daddy, another one, she would say, with tears running down her tired cheeks. Daddy would always get them and then carry a little Marlene to the bed. He was tall and had black curly hair and small eyes were almost completely transformed into one big wrinkle when he smiled, which was often. They are harmless Marlene, he would say, and no matter how many times she heard those words, they never sank in. All she could see was a crunchy, hairy and pointy little being which was much faster than that, and which appeared to know her every thought and smell her fear. Marlene and her father lived in a house with two rooms and a hot, coastal, rural town. They lived close to a small river where the fish from time to time, so Marlene's house often smelled like a swamp around the fish. The walls, which used to be white, were now of a light grey colour and decorated by mice running into a robot looking fruit with eyes, legs and arms. Wake up, Marlene. Remember it was time to get ready to go to school. Marlene would rather stay home and go explore the trees that led to the stream. One of the trees, which had a cavity near the bottom, and which Marlene sometimes stuffed pebbles and little bells was her favourite. She loved visiting it. Wake up, Marlene, she heard her father's voice again, and opened her eyes suddenly. It was a fear that they would arrive late to school again, and her father would get in trouble. Daddy was a math, science and music teacher at the local school, which was about 15 minutes away. Consisted of two small buildings with a serial painted, a small playground with discoloured red slides and a swing made out of broken wood. The two basketball rooms with strings attached to them, that were built they once had nets. Sometimes Marlene's father had to stay in school longer, so he introduced her to the walk homes for our homework. These walks back home were secret adventure that he sometimes shared with Gemma, his closest friend. He balanced their bodies on the edge of the unpaved road, trying to avoid at the same time the two cars that drove on it and the bushes to its side. My father said that there were snakes in the bushes, said Marlene. With suspense in her voice and a glimmer in her eyes, I saw a big one the other day, replied Gemma. Let's run home. One, two, three, and go. We've all found
several attempts, this cockroach was huge. To Marlene, who almost resembled a human being, this is why, despite the strong fear of cockroaches that she had developed in childhood, she did not want this one to die. It was still crunchy and hairy, but its huge antenna and rounder body somehow made it more amiable. Gilbert could not find the word to explain to Marlene that she could not have a cockroach stay in her room too long, so he just found a bigger plastic container and several tiny holes through it. Gilbert was short and a little bit chubby, but his arms and hands were quick. He had been in several bands playing the guitar and the drums, but always ended up hating all the music he had created. For the 16 days in which Marlene had a cockroach as a pet, Gilbert placed it under the bed every time someone visited them, covering it with a small towel in front of her so that she knew that Before going back to a particular day in her childhood, in which her daddy bought her a new doll back from school, one of her parents gave me this doll for you, she said with a deep caring voice. You can put it in the tree if you want, but don't lose it. Marlene looked around her, the room was all white, not light grey, and it smelled like lavender and alcohol, not like a swamp or fish. She felt lost and very afraid. She looked down at bony hands and did not recognise them. She did not recognise that body. She did not recognise the yellow pyjama which body was wearing. She was speechless. She looked to the floor and saw a plastic container. Inside of it, there was a cockroach. Daddy, another one. Kill it, kill it. Gilbert rushed for a door and saw her there, sitting on her chair, trembling in her eyes. He saw panic and fear like he had never seen before. It was as though her eyes were seeing something terrible, something that could not be spoken. Gilbert felt guilty about letting her keep the cockroach, hit by panic. 
it's great to observe the small print of the Italian in his pocket. My knees started coming down and mumbling. Aren't you going to carry me to bed, Ellie? Gilbert was dis- disinfecting his book with the alcohol, which he kept on one of the little tables in Marlene's room, turning around to see her mumbling and gently closing her eyes at the same time. In her town, she's known to everyone for having such great fondness of any kind of animals. They may be venomous and dangerous, but known her for her fearless lash, often to places beneath. Not once she can use scary taunts against animals with her. There's one other time she came with two large scorpions on her shoulders, which that day made all the inhabitants rush inside the houses and close all their doors as she passed by. She has no parents anymore with her. She grew up in the jungle with all sorts of beautiful animals as kids. Perhaps that's what the reason why her heart had to whine a big place for animals. Speaking of friends, she has met Eva, but has long sworn to keep to herself not to get close to a weird lady like her. That doesn't make her so sad anymore, as all that she knew was good into her head. Would there to be sad, she has long found a family. May I have bread, please? She requested one day as she put the money on the cash of the table and waited. She received nothing, even a simple okay, she thinks would be enough, but that didn't happen. Thank you, ma'am, she smiled, as the cashier looked at her with some kind of disgust here. She accepted that, well, she always does. That's how her own life works. She thinks sometimes a thought comes up to her, which is perhaps the reason why she's treated this way. Because she's different in a way of living. She lives not as normal as the way the others do. They hate animals, and she can say that's why animals do hate them too. This afternoon, when all of a sudden, she was struck by the power of boredom. She lived alone, and every time she brought an animal into her house, she would only return them back to where they used to live. Whatever she did to just keep herself busy and ignore that feeling, she didn't. Something's pushing and pulling her out of the house. It was all confusing and irritated at this feeling, so she decided to visit the jungle. Who she called, her voice echoed from the jungle. I'm here, are you guys going to ignore me? As the tongue she unknowingly passed her on a smile, she heard rustling sounds of dry grass, and there came five scorpions to her. Hey, are you guys alright? How are you doing? Have you eaten? They raised their pegy pouts and made the soft noise, so they dropped them down with an ear-piercing loud walking. The scorpions ran away back to a hole in the tree. That's alright, you need not to be afraid, my loves. I'll take a look at it. She carefully treaded so as not to trigger whatever animal that war came from, as it was said that most angry animals, hearing the sensible and unpleasant noise, would make them angry more. She took a look secretly through the bushes and found Jasper, wounded wolf. Oh dear, she muttered in shock and worry. She was supposed to be carefully walking here, but the blood that scattered on the ground had her run to it without her control. She placed her hands gently to its foot. It roared so loud and it freaked her out. Easy, easy, my love. It's alright. I'm here to help you. It roared again and was trying to smack her. It must have been so but hurt. It must have been hurt so badly that it couldn't control its temper and wanted to fall. She tried an attempt at taking the steps, but it's looking at her. I will not hurt you, I promise. I'll help you lessen your wounds pain. She 
said in a worried tone, and when she found it slightly softened, she began taking steps towards her. Good boy. Don't bite at me, okay? This might hurt a bit. There's a lot more bear to suffer in this wound for too long. Wolf rocked itself too hard and it slightly shook the ground she was standing. Where did you get this wound? She asked as she rubbed the part of her dress. It may be, it may be as a tourniquet to stop the blood from gushing out. Did you get into a fight? A growl when she asked that. Before she wrapped it around its left foot, she first let it soak up the wound she has with her. When its foot wrapped it already, she gave him a pat on its head. Don't get yourself into a fight next time, okay? Get well very soon, said a kiss before she left him. See you tomorrow, my loves. Her last words after going out was angry. In the next day, she went visiting there again and hoped to see that wolf finally getting better. Did you see it walking away this morning? She asked Scorpio and it shook its head. I wonder where could that be? A few seconds and she just heard the sound she had just as she went into it. She turned behind and looked wolf with the tourniquet and she made herself tied around his foot. It licked its shoulder and looked at her. He was about to cry like a proud mother. She ran to it and hugged it so tightly. You're alright, thank goodness. After that amazing thing she did, she felt more inspired to be in there every day. Every time she went there, it was like a celebration of her family. She even gave them names, scorpions, snakes, bugs and many more. Special one, she named it Ashgrave. It was one of those days she met Raven, a fine looking man who happened to wander in the jungle. In the moment where she was talking with the animals, he was suddenly killed, blowing everything. Everyone went back to their homes quickly. She was amazed how he bravely stood in front of her, and those who just ran away animals and had spotted some guts to come closer to her. As if she thought the perfect time to feel the feeling of being loved by someone was just like her. Human. Sometimes we couldn't just live forever like this. We still need love, a human's love, she would say. She fell in love with Raven after the days of meeting, and he told her he did so, too. Not to mention, they became a couple. Ever since Raymond came, Ashgrave didn't show up anymore. It waited one afternoon, but after how many hours passed, with no Ashgrave appeared, she began to worry. Amanda, he'll be alright. He might have been finding anything new, Raven would say, as she has already told him about Ashgrave. They celebrated, as she didn't want to disappoint everyone, and after that, she went all around the jungle and Raven left. Ashgrave, where are you, Ashgrave? It's been getting dark and lots of mosquitoes were taking flight to my skin. Until it's completely dark and she hasn't heard anything from home, she's getting dizzy. Can you just watch me getting sick here after saving me? without anyone to answer her. She's a complete fool for doing that. An easel trembling after all that walking. She doesn't know where she was, but she thinks she's quite far from home already. She continued to walk until her vision's getting more blurry and her head's aching angrily. She lost her balance. Every second, she was getting more and more weak due to the coldness. And because of having eaten nothing, Staying there, laying flat on the grassy and itchy ground, and was being surrounded by mosquitoes. Her eyes were slowly getting closed and she collapsed. Amanda, darling, what's wrong? Are you alright? You've got many red spots on your skin. She opened my eyes and almost jumped out when she found myself on the bed. Who brought me here? 
What? He asked with confused look. I was at the jungle last night, Raven. Seriously, who brought me here? Was it you? She asked in almost choking voice. What are you saying? You went there last night. Are you out of your mind, Amanda? Last night? She looked at him wide-eyed, and her eyes were caught by something on the floor. A piece of her dress with blood. The dress she remembered she tied around Ashfrey's foot. I, I'm sorry, darling, but why did you go there? Was that because of that wolf again? Darling, it's a wolf. Look at yourself. He pointed the spots on my shoulders, and she stayed silent and still undeniably worrying about it. Let's go. I'll go with you to find it. She didn't refuse, for that's what she wants. She wants to know what has happened to Ashgrave. They wore large coats and brought four sandwiches with them and started off searching. When it's almost four in the afternoon, they rested under a tree. After a good half hour of resting, when they caught each other's eyes, he pulled her up close to him and was about to kiss her when there came an angry roar. And as her eyes all closed now, she hadn't seen how Raven got himself thrown and bumped his back into a tree and dropped a knife. Ashgrave. An extreme look of shock came all over my face when Ashgrave jumped onto him. Ashgrave, it didn't listen, and that hurts her. How fast Ashgrave changed, she could hardly recognise him anymore. Oh no, please stop it. She went to him and tried to make him calm, but he was so angry that he almost bit her. I'll kill you, Raven shouted as she found him drawing out his cutlass, but before he could take a step, Ashgrave took the chance and hovered on top of him and smashed his face, her heart automatically shattered into pieces. Raven, she covered her eyes and cried with her knees touched the ground. She was at the verge of crying when she felt something rubbing her shoulder, using its fur, and when she looked up, it was Ashgrave, bringing Raven's bag. She couldn't seem to hate him even after what he did, so she took the bag and went through rummaging it. It was all dusty tools, and inside the tiniest pocket, her hand touched paper. She read it, the moment she was done, she put her hand on her mouth and sobbed, and looked around in hopes to see Ashgrave, but he wasn't there anymore. She stood up to find him, and he was staring out into space at the back of a tree. Just because of its sight, she couldn't help but feel like her heart's being pierced by millions of sharp needles. She rushed to him and hugged him, tighter in the first hug. Thank you, Ashgrave. I didn't know that. Thank you. I'm sorry. In the midst of hugging Ashgrave, the letter that was written on the paper came to echo inside her mind. Kill her and you'll get paid the money you need for your family.